If you are new to church this morning um, and you're doing that thing where you move to a city and you check out a few churches, stop your search. Just stick, stick around here. I think if I wasn't paid to be a Christian, I would be here on a Sunday. Um, and, uh, and, and these guys are great. And when you're, finding, when you're trying to navigate what kind of church I want to belong to, look at the leadership. Don't look at what can I get out of it, but look at the leaders. And here you've got leaders who are passionate about the Bible and passionate about the move of the Holy Spirit. They have integrity and they lead with vision and it's compelling and it's exciting and they obey God. And ultimately, um, that's what we want. And um, so if you are looking for a new church, just stick here. Um, don't bother going and getting other, other croissants. Um, I want to say a little bit about um, the vineyard. The vineyard's quite always been a, a, a massive special thing for me. Now, most of you probably just rock up because it's a nice, nice environment and you just rocked up in the church. But the vineyard um, movement has really shaped who I am. I didn't grow up going to church and um, I started going to a youth group called Soul Survivor Harrow in northwest London. And, um, and that only existed because of Soul Survivor, which only existed because of um, the Toronto Blessing, which only existed because of John Wimber and the movement of the Holy Spirit that was going on at the time. And then after then, I started getting involved in New Wine, which only existed because of the movement of Vineyard. Um, and then I went and worked at HDB, which is only big and great because of the move of the Holy Spirit um, that happened when John Wimber came to visit. And, and then when I um, did my second theology degree, I, I looked at the Wimberization of the Anglican Church. Isn't that an exciting, exciting title? That was my dissertation um, when I was doing a postgrad. Was how does an Anglican um, uh, Church of England church adopt the theology of the vineyard without having to become a different denomination? And I was fascinated by this stuff. So I read every book John Wimber had written and, and other books that other people had written about John Wimber. And so it's always been a very special part of, of my own. Um, I'm kind of an accidental Anglican, like I just happened to be in Anglican churches. I didn't kind of wake up one day going, oh, I want to be in the Church of England. I just happened to be there. I think if I would choose and I could choose by design, I would, I'd be somewhere around here. And today I want to talk a little bit about um, sharing the kingdom. And we talk a lot about the kingdom of God, and especially in vineyard churches, it's, it's like a central theme. But it's also, more importantly, a central theme for Jesus. It's the number one thing he talks about. More than anything else, he starts, the kingdom of God is the number one thing he talks about. Number two is money. Um, and so you've had a bit of that already today, praise the Lord. And then after then, he goes into relationships, is probably the third. And then you get other things. But the primary thing he speaks about is the kingdom of God, and he wants to demonstrate through his life and his death the message of the kingdom of God, also known as the gospel or the good news. You might have heard the word gospel or the phrase good news, but sometimes we have to stop and ask ourselves, why is the good news good? And why is it essential to the kingdom of God? Because I think if you've, if you've been in church a long time, maybe you grew up going to church, you're, you think, oh, these kind of Sundays are for my best mate. Or these, sun, these kind of Sundays are for the, the guy I invited to church a couple of days ago. But we have to, as Christians, almost have these, these MOT moments where we realise and remember why is the good news good so that we can then share it. Because every kingdom on, 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 on earth has its message. Every kingdom has its message. And um, whether that's the kingdom of sports, it has, it has messaging and branding wrapped around it that helps people latch onto the vision of the thing. And the, the kingdom of God is no different. And the people who bring that message are called evangelists 
you've heard that term. Often we use it as short shorthand for the person on the street corner with a placard telling all your best mates they're going to hell. Um, that's not kind of the vision of the New Testament evangelist. And basically what an evangelist is, it comes from a Greek, the, the euangelion, which basically when a new king um, entered the throne, because you didn't have BBC News pinging off at that point saying we've got a new king on the throne, they would send out these messengers into all the rural parts of the Middle East to go and tell the people living in those areas there's a new king on the throne and this is what it means to now follow this new king and often that would come with things like your taxes are going to increase it sounds a bit like oh one doesn't it um um, but but you'd go they'd go in and they'd say all the new things that you're now going to have to do because there is a new king on the throne they're called the euangelions which where we get the word evangelist from but what is the content of the news what is the content of the good news of Jesus Christ why is it good and why is it new um, we, we see in Luke 8, if you've got a Bible, you're welcome to open it up. If you've got a phone, just go on Angry Birds or something. Um, Angry Birds still a thing? Anyone play Angry Birds still? No. <laughs> what do you do on these devices these days? Um, eight, uh, Luke chapter 8 talk, tells this parable, which is probably told um, maybe once a month in Sunday schools, but um, it's a good one to remember. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was shown, than sown. Sorry. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see though hearing they may not understand. And this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by preserving, produce a crop. So the first thing I want to say is this. The, the good news is good because the kind of hearers that hear the good news involves all kinds of people. So the hearers that aren't special people, the people who hear the good news, you don't have to graduate so you hear the good news. The hearers of the good news include all kinds of people, particularly those who know there are needs of God's grace, mercy, and love. Particularly those people who are in need of God's grace, mercy, and love. Right at the beginning of the, the, um, of the reading there, Luke 8, 1 says this, The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. And Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Well, why is this important? Well, we have 
uh, a book that's written in about 85 CE. So just about 52 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet we're still finding out at this point that the people who are around Jesus at this time were not known as absolute heroes or spiritual gurus or people who walk into spaces levitating six inches off the floor or have the, this holy shroud around them or this, this aura, but yet they were identified and known by their weaknesses. Their weaknesses were the things that identified them as they hung around with Jesus. Let's go over again. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. How do people know that? How did Luke know that? Well, she probably had to tell a few people. People were there present when um, Mary was being prayed for and these demons were coming out of her and then that was one of the ways that she was being identified. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, they're the enemies, guys. Like, and this person was the manager of the, the enemy's household. So she was, um, she was being employed by the enemy. She was working with the enemy. She was socialising with the enemy and yet still around Jesus. And then we have Susanna, full stop. Susanna, who isn't identified here by who she's married to, who she was daughter of, what household she was part of. She was just, there was nothing that important about her. She was just hanging out with Jesus. And then we see many others. Why is this important? Well, when you meet Jesus, you can't not tell of how much you're in need of his saving. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I was uh, uh, just about 16 years of age and I had no experience of church whatsoever growing up at all. I had grown up in a very uh, chaotic household. I, I ran away from home when I was 14 to move to London. Um, and I, I first um, started to get to know Jesus because when I was 15, I was in a pub with my brother and a guy came around selling illegal DVDs from table to table and I bought the Passion of the Christ off him and thought it was just like Gladiator or a film like that. And I stuck it in, hammered drunk, and um, became absolutely obsessed with who this Jesus was. And so I reached out to the one Christian that I knew and said, where do you go on Sundays? Can I join you? And I started going to church. And then I'd spend all the time around people, um, around these lovely Christians who I'd spend loads of time. Like, I, wanted to, I wanted their holiness to rub off on me. I wanted their niceness to rub off on me. I wanted their, their, um, all the things that I saw that were so different from the other people I hung out with. I wanted it to rub off on me. Because when you encounter God's love, it's impossible not to tell of your flaws and brokenness. And I remember the first time I brought a mate to church. It was a couple of weeks after I had started going to church. And still, uh, the discipleship curve hadn't kicked in yet. I was still doing a lot of the things that I was doing before I met Jesus. Um, and I brought my mate, um, and, he was, and he, we had that moment that Jamie just led us in beautifully, where someone can come up and share a word. And he grabbed the microphone, and I was like, what is he doing? Um, and he said, I love this Jesus thing. You can get hammered, get high, like Alex does, and still come to church on Sunday. It's brilliant. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've still got so much to go on. When you encounter his love, it's impossible not to tell of your own flaws and brokenness because it's then that it highlights God's grace in your life. And St. Paul says it like this, my grace is sufficient, to you, uh, sufficient for you, says Jesus, for my power is perfected in your completeness, in your great CV, in the people you have around you. No, it says in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So the power of Christ. So here's a bit of the equation for the logical thinkers in the room. If you want to see God's power, and I want to see it, I want to see it in bucket loads. I want to see it in my life. I want to see it in the life of my kids. I want to see it in my marriage. I want to see it in the life of our church. I want to see it in the city. I want to see God's power. Paul is saying, well, the way we're going to see God's power rest on us 
is if we boast in our weaknesses, if we're like honest about the stuff that we find difficult, if we're honest about the position of our heart, if we're honest about the stuff that we do when no one's looking, if we're honest about the stuff we're watching when no one's looking, if we're honest about that stuff, then we start to see God's power move as we start to see those chains get broken. And I love how God attracts people to him amidst weakness. And I'm a massive fan of um, recovery courses and people who have um, come out of addiction because I come from a very addictive um, uh, household. And one thing that's so confronting if you're in a nice Christian community and someone who's been through something like recovery is they will tell you everything very quickly because they've been spending months telling their friends and telling the people in groups, being so honest and openly. And our, and our Christian sensitivity is like, oh, well, I was just shopping for avocados last week and I, I can't quite deal with this um, openness and this vulnerability. And yet you see them so liberated because they no longer have those shadows in their life anymore. It's not when everything is going perfectly that God's grace shines brightest. But when we're like holding on for dear life by our fingertips, despite our circumstances, that people suddenly go, our mates suddenly go, oh, wow, that's powerful. It's when we start giving in the middle of a financial crisis that our friends go, oh, wow, that's different. It's when we start offering generosity, when we have nothing to give, where people are like, oh, wow, that's, that's, quite, in- that's quite interesting. I'm, I'm attracted to that idea. And we have this wonderful story um, about sharing of this good news Um, And you've heard the story a lot of times, but when Jesus meets a woman from Samaria at a well. And now the Samaritans in the time of Jesus were known as race traitors. Like they were known as being um, very, very anti-Jew. And there was this massive division between Jewish people from Jerusalem and Samaritans from Samaria. Um, They worshipped, they both worshipped God, they both worshipped Yahweh, but came from the tribe of Israel. And the the thing that the Jews had a problem with was Samaritans married outside of Samaria as well, whereas Jews would only marry people from Jerusalem. Um, And they would worship on a mount, uh, Mount Shechem, so they would worship on this special mountain. And uh, they were very geographical, whereas the people of Jerusalem, they might live out, but they come into Jerusalem to worship. And the thing is, is that um, Jewish purity laws would say that you can't mix with people from Samaria. They were considered not fully Jewish, and the books that they read only, um, only include the first five books of the Old Testament, not everything else. And yet Jesus, time and time and time again, walks through Samaritan regions constantly. And the woman at the well is just one instance, but a Jewish historian at the time of Jesus once wrote, a loyal Jew would walk for miles to avoid Samaritan soil. So even walking onto the area of um, Samaria would almost um, dirty you. And here we have this wonderful instance where Jesus meets this woman at the well, this, Samar- this Samaritan woman, who um, he, he says, you know, you've, you've uh, had four husbands and the one you're with currently isn't your husband. And he has this moment of vulnerability with her where he explains everything that's going on in the hidden life of this woman. And her response is not one of shame. It's not one of like, I'm going to quickly come off Instagram and Twitter and, and try and hide away from everything. She runs back to her town and she tells everyone. And the thing she says is this in John chapter 4. He told me everything I ever did. Everything. Now, hands up, who, for who is that good news if the Lord told you, like, everything you ever did? Who would you then go to, like, your best mate? <laughs> oh, wick, just met Jesus, and he told me everything I ever did. And then it says this, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to them, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. 
The thing is, I don't think Jesus wants us to be polite, biblically literate, know all the answers to begin telling people about the good news of the gospel. If we've experienced his love, where the weaknesses we, no long, the weaknesses we have no longer hinder us, but propel the grace of God, we can tell someone. And we all have something worth sharing. I think one thing that church history has done is it's turned evangelism into a weird thing that only extroverts tend to do um, when they've got no other friends around them. So they're like, oh, I must go and tell people. But your story that you have, your story is so much better than a million of my sermons. I wouldn't say Jamie's, but it's so better than a million of most sermons. The story you have of your encounter with God's love is something far more compelling for your mates than dragging them to church ever will be. And one of the reasons we love Alpha um, is because people don't come for the content. They don't even come for the good food. Really, it's because they get to hear normal people's stories of them encountering God's love that radically changed their lives. We had a guy at Alpha this week who um, signed up on the afternoon of the Wednesday and he walked into our church and you could tell he looked lost. And I went up and he was like looking around and I went up to him, I was like, are you all right, mate? He's like, yeah. And it was about student age. And I was like, um, do you know anyone here? And he's like, no, not at all. I signed up about like three hours ago. I was like, great. Well, how did you find out about Alpha? And he said, um, well, about five days ago, I took mushrooms and I never felt so present, man. And then he was like, and I just heard these voices and then heard birds and like the mountain, I just saw mountains. And I was like, I must find out about God. And I was like, Fine. And I was like, here's your group. Um, um, and, um, and at one point during the group, uh, he just said to all the, all the people who um, had been on Alpha for a week, he said to them, do you guys mind all just talking about God for a bit? I'm just going to watch you. Because he, he just wanted to see people talk about God. I, f- I think there's something so attractive when people are talking, not about their theological um, views, but their stories about how God has encountered them. It's far more compelling than any lecture or book or course of any kind. And John Wesley, who's an absolute hero, says this, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. And the thing is, even though I became a Christian when I was 16, my journey into finding more about Jesus started a bit earlier than that. So when I was about 10, um, I lived in a a super chaotic house uh, in a flat on a council estate. And I had these three mates, Ben, Joel and Tom, they're all in my school. And, um, and Ben and Tom had an uncle who was in a uh, Christian rock group. Um, um, and they said, hey, my uncle's in this Christian rock group. Do you want to come to the seafront in the town I lived in and see them play open air live? And I was like, not at all. <laughs> that sounds rubbish. Um, and, uh, um, but uh, because I lived very close to the seafront, they knocked on my door on the way and they like, were like, Alex, we're all going. And then there was a couple of pretty girls there as well. So I was like, okay, we're all going. And I was allowed to stay out a bit later. So I was like, yeah, we're good. Um, and so we went to this thing and um, they took me backstage to meet their uncle um, and he gave me a CD that was signed. And then about um, uh, four years later, I ran away from home and I took two CDs with me, Beach Boys Greatest Hits, and for some reason, Delirious Deeper album, which was this album that was like, no reason why I took it. Um, but for some reason, I took that CD. And then the first song that was played when I first walked into church was Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble? And I was like, I said to the person who dragged me to church, I was like, I know this song. And they're like, how do you know this song? And then I told them the story. 
But Ben, Tom and Joel dragged me to this thing. And then there was a, um, a teacher at this new school that I, I joined when I was 14. It was the only school that would take me because I'd run away from home. I didn't have any records. So um, it was just a local school that took me and it had uh, metal detectors on the way in. It had a police station built into the school. It was pretty rough in northwest London. And... Um, I got into a bit of a scuffle in a science class at one point um, uh, involving a couple of uh, uh, stools in the science lab. And, um, and the science teacher sent me to her office and she said, stay there, I'm going to come back. And she, um, I sat with her over lunch. She said, I should exclude you because we have a zero tolerance policy for violence. Um, but she said, I won't on the one condition that you meet me once a week and um, spend time uh, talking to me about what's really going on at home. And, and then a few years later, when I started going to church, she was like front row crew of my then girlfriend's church. She, and I didn't realize, but I'd seen and encountered an example of Christian grace in a moment where she should have, if she had followed uh, the letter of the law, sent me off. There was a lad on the school bus that I went to, um, on the school that I went to, who every single Monday morning, he would always ask me this question. He'd say, how was your weekend? Now, my weekends were rubbish. Um, I used to skate a bit, so they're obviously like Gray's Field and that kind of thing. And I smoked a lot of weed at the time, and so they would just be, uh, just be pretty boring. And only because he knew that I was polite, and I would have to say at the end of this, how's your weekend been? And then what he would do was, do you know what? Sunday was amazing. <laughs> And he would get out his notebook and he would tell me the, the preach that his pastor had preached. And he would like, be like, oh, you've got to come to church. You've got to come to church. And then um, the final person I want to chat about is um, the person who eventually took me to church, who's now my wife. Um, but the reason she took me was because I, I was just this, this ragamuffin in this school, had no real sense of identity. I reached out to her because I knew that she was a Christian, said, take me to the, the thing you, do, you go to on a Sunday. And I just met all these Christian lovely people who just love me back to life, even to the point where a year later I needed somewhere to live because our house um, situation was awful. And these Christians let me stay in their uh, spare room. It was meant to be three months, it ended up being four years. And I just saw Christian kindness and grace up close and personal. Why do I share those stories? Well, not one of those people were paid to be a Christian. Not one of those people were employed by a church staff team. Not one of those people were, um, thought they had all the right answers. They were just teenagers at the same age and stage as I was. Some of them were professional teachers and that kind of thing. Just using the kindness and the grace that they knew of to transform my life. Romans 2.4 says this, it's God's kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. God's kindness. And I think as we display those, um, those examples of God's kindness, we'll see our city come to know the Lord. We are saved, all of us, not from something, but for something. And that, and that saving is because we're filled with a purpose that means that whatever job or, or thing that occupies our time, we can go with our story of grace and redemption that can change a city. So, God, um, so the good news is good because it involves all hearers. The good news is also good because it's God doing the sowing. In the story, in the parable, it's, it's, it's meant to be God who is sowing the seed. Now, I think often we've read the thing and thought the pressure's on us because we're meant to be sowing the seed. God is always sowing the seed. We occasionally are like temp workers where we like jump in on a season and do a little bit, but mostly we're getting in the way. Um, it's a bit like my kids help me wash the car. Like it, it, it never helps anything. But... Um, but God is actively sowing all the time. 
And throughout a lot of church history, it, it was believed that Christians took God to far off unknown places, almost like baby Yoda in a backpack, like we'll take God with us and, and drop him off. And then the, the country or the nation or the tribe we're going to, they will come to know the Lord. But it's not the way that God works. There are stories time and time again of people being drawn to Jesus without any human agency, any institution involved or any Christian presence even. From Muslims having vivid dreams of Jesus to Chinese prisoners of war finding themselves compelled to just sing the name of Jesus. And so what happened in the mid 20th century, a load of theologians um, got together and started using this phrase, missio dei, which means the mission of God, to differentiate the missio ecclesia, which is the mission of the church, to say that actually the church has its place, but also God is at work all over our globe. God is already at work. He is on mission, and our job is to simply get involved, to simply come alongside him, to say, yeah, God, this is where you're involved. Can I, can I please have a bit of a temp job? God is always on mission, bringing people into his kingdom since day one and won't ever stop. And we have a, a great example of this in Matthew um, chapter 16. Jesus comes to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi at the time of Jesus was basically like the Las Vegas of gods. So it was, where you, it was like a massive strip of different temples of all kinds of Greek gods. So you'd go to one temple if you wanted to have a baby, go to another temple if you want good crops. And there was also this cleft in the rock, in the rock face right by it, which was called the, um, the Gates of Hades, where awful sacrifices were made and all kinds of different things happened there. And Jesus brings um, Simon Peter to that place. And he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh or blood, but my father in heaven. See that, the, the mission of God, God is already revealing amongst our mates who he is. But then he goes on, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the, kingdom of, uh, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is building his church based on professions of faith. And we will all get things wrong. Jamie and Kath will get some things wrong. This church is not dependent on earthly wisdom or making sure our strategies are in check. We do plan, we strategize, and we prepare because we want to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with, but we are totally dependent on God rocking up and showing up. It's why we need to pray, come Holy Spirit, every single Sunday, because we need a moment in our service where potentially things could go off piste. It's the Lord who adds to his church. It's Jesus who is building his church. And church growth theory and practices are probably boring to most people in this room. They help us to kind of where to prune and what fertilizer to use, but in no way do they cause or even explain the miracle of conversion-based growth, of people coming to know Jesus, their lives turning around and then being hope bearers wherever they go. And so thirdly and finally, the good news is good because it's really, really good. It's like really good. And um, just uh, hands up, if you at some point since you've been in church here have felt God move in the small or the big or the somewhere in between, hands up. Hands up if you yeah, look around. Oh, wicked. Wicked way more than when I asked that in my church. <laughs> John Wimber says this, that we want to take the ammunition of balanced evangelical theology with the firepower of mainstream Pentecostal practice 
loading, loading, that's not a word, he didn't say that, loading and readying the best of both of these worlds to hit the biblical target of making and nurturing disciples. And I love that. Like we need the, we need the, um, the ammunition of balanced evangelical theology. Like we, we want to be people that are shaped by the word of God, that as we move and have our being, we are looking to the Bible as our primary source of wisdom, but we need the fire of the Holy Spirit to, to, flame, to turn these things into flames that as we make and nurture disciples, people are transforming the words they're part of. And Jesus puts it like this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, Set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It's why we need to keep on telling good news stories in amongst our community. It's why we need to be celebrating with our whole beings when someone gets baptised or when kids hear God for the first time or when adults experience the presence of God for the first time or having a local community that just loves having a church around in its area. Students finding home faith being renewed and relationships being restored because it works. This stuff works. The good news is not just a a thing that's um, resigned only for people with placards on street corners, but it's the very ammo we have. Whatever house party we go to, whatever gathering we in, we go as bearers of the good news of God. We have something to share. Unfortunately, you guys, you're not just inviting mates into a dusty building. It's, It's very lovely, isn't it? These hanging light bulbs. Um, you're inviting your mates into a community that you know that will love them and they will introduce them to a God that has done everything in, in his power to be in relationship with them and who knows what may happen in the life of your best mate who doesn't yet know Jesus as you begin to share with boldness and courage the good news of the kingdom of God in your workplace, at the supermarket with your flatmates and it begins simply with telling your story of what God has done. And we want to do all that we can be to be a church across the city that is intentionally reaching people for the kingdom of God across the city. We want to see there's so many people who don't know Jesus. We want to see our best mates who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus because we know there will be absolute firepower in the hands of God. And it might be a member of your family. For me, the person I pray for all the time is my best mate who's my older brother. Um, and every time, uh, every time we have an opportunity, I'm praying for him because I know that when he knows just how much Jesus loves him, what he will do against the kingdom of darkness is, is amazing to even think about. And if you think about your best mate who doesn't yet know Jesus and think about what kind of potential they have in the hands of God, all we have to do is get alongside God's mission and pray come Holy Spirit and we can go with boldness into those moments. So we're going to do exactly that. We're going to pray. But I wonder whether some people in the room may just um, need a bit of that MOT. Maybe you've been in church for a while and you just let things settle a bit. And maybe the, the hope or the zeal or that uh, fire in your eyes when you first became a Christian has um, somewhat dwindled because you've been hurt. Maybe you've just asked too many people to um, find out about Jesus and you've had too many rejections. I'd love to pray for you guys. Maybe you've never heard the good news and you've been dragged by a mate today and today you're like, oh wow, this sounds like an exciting mandate. This seems like an exciting mission to be part of and we'd love to pray for you guys. And maybe for some of you, you're like, oh yeah, I've got that best mate who definitely already in my mind 
um, who I would love to be able to share the good news with. Um, and the wonderful thing about this stuff is it's such a collaborative effort. Like so often we start praying for our mates and when we start intentionally praying for those who don't know Jesus, they end up bumping into other Christians that we didn't even know existed. Um, and and let, well, let's be praying for that. And what's wonderful about this city is there's some really good churches with a really great missional outset and, there, and, that some, and there's the, the likelihood of your mate bumping into other Christians is quite high. So we're going to pray. Why don't you stand if you wouldn't mind? Why don't you close your eyes, maybe put out your hands just as a sign to God saying, I'm ready to be used in this moment. We're just going to pray the oldest prayer in the church. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.